0: we had a real allergic reaction to the idea of profits for a period of time. In the end, though, we can't do anything good if we're not bringing in money and running the business. We just had to kind of shed the sense of guilt over having surpluses and move on. As a co-op, we're benefiting from that now.
1: Hi, I'm Matt. And I am Anuj. And you're listening to the Just Good Business podcast.
2: It's a show about amplifying the voices of social enterprises, the humans behind them, and the journey they are on.
1: Join us as we learn from Nova Scotia's social enterprises,
2: hearing what inspired them to take the unusual path for doing social good, creating prosperity beyond
1: profit. Let's explore Nova Scotia's world of social entrepreneurship together.
2: Who knows? you may be closer to running your own social enterprise than you think. Just Us is a worker-owned cooperative made by and for people who love coffee. They are our own Nova Scotian importer of fair trade coffee and now tea, sugar, and chocolate bars. Founded in 1995 and with their head office located in Grand Prae, they would like to say they are more than a roastery. They are an inclusive and equitable point of commodity exchange marketplace between the global south and global north.
1: In this episode, we'll be learning with you as we chat with Joey Pituello, the general manager at Just Us. Joey has been with Just Us since 2010. He lives near Wolfville with his partner Sarah and their two children on their small organic farm. He's a chocolatier. He's an organic farmer. He's basically living the dream. Let's dive right in. Joey, I have to say, very excited to be having this conversation, not just because Just Us and Just Good Business are a match made in heaven from a naming perspective, not just because I have three young children and caffeine gets me through uh, (laughs) the better part of many a day, uh, but because of the organizational mission and uh, who you are as a business, as an entrepreneur and as a human. So uh, let me start off with a bit of a softball here for you, Joey, and would love to hear the Just Us origin story. Tell us about how you came to be as an organization.
0: Yeah, I'll do my best. Our founder, Jeff Moore, um, would have all kinds of details around that. But the way we started off was really, it was the brainchild of, of Jeff Moore. And certainly uh, his his wife, Deborah Moore, um, was the other half of the reason why it all happened early on. Both Jeff and Deborah were social workers. Um, and Back in the early 90s, Jeff had been kind of exploring this idea of coffee. And he'd been a huge social justice guy for his whole life really. And, you know, was big into the folk music scene and all these kinds of things kind of came together. Um, folk music, just kind of this grassroots kind of social justice piece that always kind of rung true for him. And, um, from my understanding, he was coming out of having just, uh, they had started, a a local, um, large community here in Wolfville. And coming out of that, he had decided to, uh, Really look deeper into what it would mean to start a coffee business that could really bring that social justice uh, piece uh, to the forefront for him. He found himself down in southern Mexico during the Civil War there um, in the uh, Zapatista communities, searching for coffee, searching for the potential for a business, searching for a sense of understanding of the struggle of uh, the folks that were, were in that war. And in the end, he returned here to Canada and to make a long story short, him and his wife had a conversation, him and Deb, and um, they decided to to remortgage their house and buy the first container of coffee that uh, would be required to get this business off and running. And with that, Just Us kind of started. So they had to bust a hole in the side of their house. That's where they put the roaster in. That's where they, the first container arrived. They filled their basement with coffee. Their house became a cafe. Uh, Deborah had a lot of recipes. They were doing baking. And and that's kind of where the origins of it started. But it really was, right from the beginning, a worker co-op was the concept. And uh, and that came out of that deep sense of social justice and, and economic justice that, that both Jeff and
1: Deb felt. And um, that's that's where the beginnings of the organization started. That's so wonderful. What an entrepreneurial journey. It's nothing like remortgaging your house and then proceeding to punch a hole in the side of said house. Uh, it's gotta feel amazing. Well, what about yourself? Tell us about just us now. I mean, so, so you're, you're obviously not in that house anymore. It's now a, a, an artist boutique or something like that. So, so what about just us now? Just us, um, certainly has, has grown over the last 26,
0: 27 years. Um, we currently are located in Grand Pre. Uh We have a, we turned an old farm market uh, off exit 10 into the current roastery and cafe um, and office building that we have here now. And, you know, at this point, you know, the, the, the values, the original kind of concept behind Just Us is still really rings true for all of the 25 or 26 worker members that we currently have. We've gone from the original four back in 1995, 96, um, to about 25 or 26 folks now. I don't know the exact number. And we've got about 55 to 60 employees generally. And we continue to have really strong direct ties with all the producer um, uh, organizations that we buy coffee from who are all also co-ops or democratically organized grower organizations. Over recent years, we've really continued around the social justice piece here in our local community a little more deeply um, as we've kind of solidified that value chain internationally and really built good, strong relationships. Businesses, I find, um, can come and go in different focuses as they go through their journey. And so we're kind of back focused on the concepts of decolonization here in our local community, building relationships with local indigenous communities around us, the Napolis Valley First Nation and Blue First Nation in particular, as well as the Nova Scotia Native Women's Association a little bit, just those kinds of relationships, uh, the newcomer population here. There's been a renewed focus on the workers in our co-op and involving them and democratic uh, power amongst those workers in our organization. So it's kind of been a bit of a rejuvenation over the last six, seven years, I'd say, kind of
2: on a more local context. What an intriguing story, Joy! A business model that integrates social, environmental concerns and impact uh, at the very core. How do you measure your success? It's a very unusual business model, you know, workers' cooperative, uh, fair mm-hmm. trade, and yet you I suppose, make money. How do you balance all this? Are there challenges in balancing all these different pieces of your business model?
0: There's always challenges, even if you're not trying to balance those things, but certainly adding those uh, other aspects have been tricky all throughout the history of the organization. For us, I think it really lies in the relationship we create Within the community of our worker co-op, and how the training, the, the educational opportunities that we create for those worker members, for example, they come from all different. It could be baristas. We've got roastery members. We've got sales reps. We've got you know management team members. All are part of the worker co-op and all have um, ownership stakes, not only from a typical kind of you know shareholder point of view, but from um, you know a, a sweat equity point of view as well as a worker co-op. So I think balancing the things all comes from the individual's uh, desire, like in our worker co-op, each individual has their own focus, whether it's maybe sustainability, maybe it's um, local community engagement, um, maybe it's business acumen. Um, But when you bring that kind of complex group of people together uh, and are creating a democratic model of business. It's complex, but you manage to get all these things coming in at the same time. And um, there's moments, like I said, where balance shifts back and forth, depending on the situation, depending on the, the environment around us um, as far as business or, or the community goes. But generally, it's that engagement with those worker members that ultimately allows us to keep that thing balanced because they're all um, members of our community. Around us, they're all members of our work community, and they all have these this mix of of uh, you know sustainability, social justice, and kind of you know business values that really allow us to mix it up into a. It's a really good recipe, you know, and in the end, it's a well
2: balanced recipe that keeps things moving forward. As we know, social enterprises of different kinds often have a major challenge in terms of investments and you alluded to that you know how jeff and deb took a second mortgage <laughs> and that's not easy for any social enterprise to, to do um, tell us a little bit of about about your numbers you know what does your investment currently look like i hope the, the second mortgage is paid for now <laughs> uh, <laughs> but how do you manage investment debt uh, or workers equity you know what kind of balances do you manage
0: yeah, well, and that was a really, that was a difficult thing to manage at the beginning of the business, like any new business, any small business, but particularly as a worker co-op, there was a challenge in that um, the local banks, um, local, you know, even government backed subsidies and and uh, opportunities for uh, fundraising all really were challenged by this idea of a worker co-op. And well, who you know, who do we write down is the you know the one the one's assets that are ultimately responsible for for this debt, right? And even the local credit union, you know that we were with for a number of years really really was challenged with this, but they did come to the table. but in the end, Jeff and Deb had to take the financial risk. And that rate right from the get-go it made it challenging, I think, as the business progressed to really sort out you know that difference in risk that existed right? even though you're trying to be a worker co-op and it's a uh, democratic structure there there were challenges there that were certainly overcome ultimately you know Jeff and Deborah retired and um, you know that's been that's been dealt with long ago but it's challenging and so for us now now about 5 or 6 years in we did a CDF. Now, this was a really interesting, innovative kind of program at the time here in Nova Scotia, almost alone. And in fact, a lot of provinces have have, uh, learned from that model and have adopted similar programs. But it allowed for local investment um, at a significant uh, tax rebate when it came to income taxes for investors. And that was a a big piece of our beginning growth was because of the CDF program, ultimately. And um, we were, I think, maybe the first real seed of success story um, that was of significant size um, and certainly continue to be kind of uh, a well-sustained, maintained organization that came out of that. We don't run CDFs anymore. Um, And so right now, our investment really, we've probably got roughly $2 million worth of local investment, including our worker co-op members in our business. we're in the stage now of paying that down over time as investors, as the tax rebates kind of dry up, and as people get older, um, they're requesting that money back, and we're returning that money, roughly 100000 to $150,000 a year right now. So it's a significant cash flow um, responsibility of ours, um, but it's it's been a huge consequence for us over the years. Now at the moment. I said before, we're not really taking advantage of CDFs anymore, mostly because they're not really accessible to us anymore. We're not a startup business anymore, and also some of the rules have changed a little bit to uh, in the, within the province, the Treasury Board. Uh, so we've moved really to to our bank as a means of securing any additional um, uh, loans as we move forward, um, in that in trying to finance some of our own smaller investments through our own uh, cash flow. So. It's become easy, quote unquote, you know, to secure loans through um, our bank branch. Now that we're a secure and established business, there's really no questions asked about worker co-op anymore. But in those first 10, 15 years, it was a really challenging thing to to finance the growth of the business because it did grow quite quickly for a period of time as well. Right now, you know, our goal is... um, And I can't speak to the exact ratios financially speaking, but our goal is to to continue to pay down um, our local investors um, with the idea of financing future through our own worker co op shareholder model um, and not including like a local investment from non worker co op members. Um, But it's really interesting, you know, we could go into detail on that, I won't today, but it's actually two co ops we've created there's an investor co op in Just Us. And then there's the worker co-op and we kind of have married the boards to some degree um, to, to allow for them to work well together. But over time, we will uh, there's likely going to be a, you know, a disbanding of the investor co-op once uh, once the, uh, the debt is paid
2: down by just us. As often Matt says, uh, prosperity beyond profit. Here is a story that you just now shared. Uh, give us a, a few numbers around your revenue. And also, how do you manage the surplus, you know, as worker owners, what kind of participation do they have in the risk and the return from that profit? I can speak
0: more specifically the last 10 years, 10 or 12 years since I've been here, but I know over that period of time, we've gone from roughly, you know, a five or $6 million business to currently um, this year, we're projecting somewhere around $11 million in sales. And, you know, that comes from a combination of our own cafes, um, which are, are only two at this point, but are significant uh, buyer from our kind of wholesale business, um, as well as um, businesses of their own um, and many other kind of from the grocery store uh, chains all the way to, you know, the local um, cafe that's uh, buying coffee from us. And, you know, we've had a couple of years where there have been no profits. um, But for the most part, every year we've, we've brought a surplus in and what we've created here at Just Us as a worker co-op is, is the ability for workers um, on a whole to benefit from surplus when they exist, but not only uh, our worker members. Uh, So right now, for example, if we had a hundred thousand dollars in surplus, $20,000 of that 20% goes to worker uh, members. And so it would be divided equally because labor is what we uh, use as a means of, of um, proportioning shares uh, in the co-op. So in a worker co-op in particular, it's not how many dollars we have invested in the worker co-op. It's one member, one, one vote, and one equal proportion of the profit sharing, no matter what you've got invested in the co-op. So there's that 20% we also share back 10% of surplus to our producer partner uh, organizations in the value chain and this typically goes towards uh, capacity building projects whether it's uh, community based or environmentally focused or or even quality or product development focused it's really about taking some responsibility for the wealth that's been stripped from these uh, communities over the centuries of colonialism and and slavery and various um, stealings of of, of wealth in these communities, and a very small part trying to pay that back in a sense, or we feel it's more of a co-responsibility for that situation. But it's also because these organizations are part of our business. If we didn't have people selling us, growing and selling us the coffee that's green, the green coffee, we wouldn't be able to have a business that we have. And so 10%, And this is not set in stone. We actually, this can be changed. It hasn't been changed for a number of years, but it's the 20%, 10%. And then we have a 5% of the surplus that's then shared amongst all workers, whether you're a member or not. And this kind of comes in the form of a cash bonus, kind of at the end of the year, typically. If it was a $100,000 surplus, it'd be 5,000 gets shared amongst all the workers based off the working hours. Um... 10% 10% goes back to producer work uh, that they're doing. And then 20% would be basically it's put back in as, as investment in just us, but it's worker member money that um, if they were to leave the co-op um, to go on to other things, they would take with them. And then the other thing we're always measuring is what's the social impact of some of the expenses that we have. So sponsorship, we really try to focus our sponsorships on community development community focused things, less kind of advertising and more on what good kind of positive community uh, efforts are we supporting with our sponsorships? Those sorts of things are taken into consideration. And ultimately, you know, we're only aiming for for roughly a 4% surplus based off our total sales. So in the case of $10 million, you know, we're looking at somewhere in the range of $400,000 surplus that we'd like to share in the way that we say, and, and, you know, obviously with the assets we have, it takes about a hundred to $150,000 just in capital investment every year, just to keep everything running and maintained. So it's not like we're trying to maximize profits and have the old adage would go. It's, it's maximizing the impact we're having in various parts of our community, both
2: globally and locally. Your intentionality, around this social impact, be it the producers, be it the local community, and be it uh, your worker members and uh, just workers, uh, is just fascinating. And how it breaks down to the intentionality and the whole nuances and details of this design is just fascinating. Thank you, Joy. It sounds like there's,
1: um, I hope you have an octagon or decagon desk because it sounds like there's quite a bit that happens off the side of the desk as well. When you're talking about decolonizing basically the industry when it comes from an international perspective and also doing some really intentional work locally um, within community, it's such important work and it's so deep rooted that that in itself can can be incredibly um, and importantly time consuming. And if you throw on, t- on top of that, the fact that you work in a very competitive environment, right? When it comes to coffee, mm-hmm. uh, you know, coffee and beverage market. So yeah. what's your approach to, to to survive and thrive while being able to recognize that, that, you know, you're working off of a Decacon desk?
0: Yeah, well, I'm not sure if I have the answer to that one yet. But I mean, the reality is, you know, admittedly, we had a bit of a, a reckoning probably six, seven years ago now. And we really recognized that we needed to actually up our game as far as our business skills and the business understanding um, if we were going to keep doing the good work that we want to do. And it really comes from this philosophy of we have all these interests in our community and globally, you know, we're organic certified product, not because organic certified, you know, being, you know, administered by the CFIA is something we think is lovely, but because Organic regenerative agriculture that builds soil, that mitigates uh, climate change is an important thing. We have lots of people that are passionate about that. We have people that are passionate about the social justice side. And so we have things we want as a worker co op to spend money on that don't necessarily have to do with selling coffee, right? Um, You know, at least not directly. And, And so there was a point where I think we were interested in in these things and we were doing these things that kind of, you know, instead of off the side of the desk, they were taking up a good portion of the desk and we started to recognize that, well, if we didn't get really, really good at the business that we do, we weren't going to be generating the kind of surpluses we needed to take on those projects. So that was something that we've actually, we've built a, you know, we've added more people to our team over the last number of years. We've tried to encourage people to be passionate about their professional development as well, like the opportunities to move from different roles where they start in the business into other, not necessarily you know, moving up is not something that is necessarily what everybody's looking for, you know, but, but moving sideways, learning new skills. Because what we have recognized in our co-op is that because we're retail, because we're sourcing from origin and shipping uh, and have direct relationships, because we have a sales team and all the kind of administrative piece, because we manufacture, there's all kinds of experiences within our co-op that are, are really interesting to learn. And so we've been developing a lot of professional skill sets, which have allowed for the business to thrive. So that's been part of why we've seen a resurgence in the local kind of focus in our engagement. Partly it's COVID has, has required us to do that because we haven't been traveling to visit partners in South America, Latin America in general, and Africa since that happened very much, but developing the business, engaging people in the business, what's happened is we've been able to be more, I think, specific around what these side desk projects are going to be. The beauty of this is that I don't need an octagon shaped desk because we have folks that are tuned in and aligned. This is the other piece. When we got passionate about our business, we also got really razor focused in on how do we align all these people in the same direction. And when we start to build that culture, when we start to build that understanding and alignment, and when we start to build those capacities in people, people that aren't, you know, the manager or the CEO or the GM or the business development manager or whatever can actually spearhead some of these side projects because they've been by the membership and management team kind of recognized to be aligned with some of the values and the goals we have as a membership. And so You know, beyond the check-in that happens to make sure that alignment remains, different people can start to take on those responsibilities. And they build interesting responsibilities, I guess, within their role as a result of that, right? So there's a richness that comes when you're able to do that and people are able to take on these interesting values-based ideas. I mean, we just went through our three-year member strategic planning session. And we've got tons of cool projects. Some of them will make it through. Some of them won't, depending on resources and depending on alignment and time. But um, having all those ideas from 24, 25 people coming in, feeding in and Mm. and filtering through and knowing they're aligned with the business and what we want to do as a co-op has
1: been pretty cool to see. Thank you for that. That's a, it's a vulnerable answer to be like, we had a reckoning six or seven years ago when we (laughs) recognized, and I think it's not for a lack of intentionality. However, I had the privilege of hanging out with a a CEO in Newfoundland this weekend, and he was talking about how culture eats strategy for breakfast, Mm -hmm. but how lack of clarity kills culture. And it sounds like when you have so much um, uh, interest uh, and desire for impact, Um, If that's too broad and too widespread, then you end up adding sides to your desk and you end up getting less and less done. But with that reckoning happening, being able to create a sense of clarity of unification, then you're all kind of pulling in the same direction and you're able to speak to that impact, probably with an opportunity to continue to evolve and increase um, how you're able to kind of laser focus that target. It's a juggling act that we're all trying to balance. We had a real allergic reaction to the idea of profits
0: for a period of time. It was this sense of of guilt that comes along with the fact we might be making money. And sometimes you get that from even from customers. You're trying to also, uh, you know, uh, have customers that appreciate the work that you're doing. And you always uh, there's this kind of you're you're following this this desire around to, you know, meet the customer's expectation and, you know, not make the bad word profits. And in the end, though, we can't do anything good if we're not bringing in money and running the business and allowing it to, to sustain itself and then having that money to invest in the, the good things that, that we are doing. So there was a bit of epiphany that came where we just had to kind of shed the sense of guilt over, over having surpluses and move on. And, and then I think people are really, as a co-op, we're benefiting from that now.
1: I love that. The incomparable Lauren Sears always says purpose led, not purpose bled.
2: (laughs) This idea of profit versus surplus, it's not how much profit you make, it's how you use it Mm -hmm. and and how you repurpose it. Let me pick up the thread where you said um, you have had this three-year reflection period uh, with your worker members. What are uh, some of the key hopes and dreams that you have as a collective right now
0: it's a really good question i mean we're still kind of solidifying where this is going to go for start it'll start next year but what i found was really interesting was a very broad consensus around the interest in just us supporting some form of cooperative housing for its members affordable housing that's cooperatively focused and there's a few different streams I can speak to as far as um, those uh, sessions. We had two days worth of discussions. We actually um, paid a visit to Gluescat First Nation and rented their space, and we kind of were in the community, and we were doing this brainstorming there um, with a good friend of ours, Frank Gallant, who's an anti-Ganish with Peak Experiences, who's really been uh, really helpful over the last couple of years with helping us to develop some of this. But because we all know housing is a challenge, particularly affording it, whether it's renting it or owning a home, um, there was a strong consensus among a number of workers that we wanted to explore. How do we partner? How do we, you know, not necessarily do it on our own, because that would be a bit of a difficult challenge, you know, as far as alignment with coffee business, right? But this was something that we, we explored a little bit and we explored more broadly even how is there an umbrella that we could support the creation of that our worker co-op, just us, could be part of and also allow us to get into different interests that our membership has, but, but collaborate with other organizations, other businesses that have different expertise so that we could better utilize what we do well to feed into a broader kind of co-op development umbrella organization? So there was a lot of interest. There's kind of this broader interest that existed. There was another interesting thing. We, I, I said earlier we were big into um, regenerative organic agriculture and uh, and how that works. And we've been collecting coffee waste for a lot of years now out back. We compost it. And we have a we're out in the rural part of uh, the province out in Grand Prey. And so we've got a parcel of land in behind um, that a number of workers. Um, have been using for vegetable plots over the last number of years. And more and more people are becoming interested in growing their own vegetables out back. Uh, We have the equipment, we have a greenhouse uh, from a previous project that we closed down, um, but we're putting it back to use. And one of the big things that came out of a certain group of members was we want a real proper composting facility that we could even bring in uh, some of our food wastes and do a proper job and really start to build the soil In our back gardens so the ideas were as broad as an umbrella organization where we could you know maybe invest some of our profits in things that weren't related directly to our coffee business to a very grassroots kind of how do we build a composting facility to nourish the soil that will grow food for our workers uh, in our community so you know that's just a couple of of the ideas that came out but neither of them talk about you know, a product that we're gonna sell next year. That comes out of our annual business planning process that is also underway this year, we have two to do. So it's, you know, there's a bit of added complexity given the the structure of our organization, but some of those more business focused things also happen with a group of 12 to 15 emerging leaders, we call them that are, but it's more operationally focused um, and it's kind of a one year basis, but the overall three year strategic plan, we. You know, we're trying to achieve those things also in our annual plans, but we have to layer that. We, we kind of have that as the overarching landscape. And then we, as uh, as an operational team, are trying to figure out well, what things can we can we do within the three-year member plan over the course of the next uh, next year and then the year after that. So there's there's multiple horizons we're kind of planning on and multiple focuses, depending on which perspective, which hat, you know. An individual or a group of people are wearing at any given moment here in the worker co
2: op. The idea of workers' cooperative is not new. And yet, what you just now have described, how it can be such a powerful business model, and some of your hopes and dreams of probably, if I may interpret that, transition from just not running a, a business, but seeing so what? And how does it? influence uh, the orbits that you work in in the local communities in the province. So if you were to articulate how can we make such experiments as business models expand and spread, what would your uh, policy recommendations or suggestions would be? what will make that will make that happen? I know it's a big question, but give us one or two key things.
0: It is a big question and we've been exploring it for a few years now, because that's one of been one of our side projects is, particularly coffee businesses, how could we spur the generation of new, either cafe worker co-ops or coffee roasting worker co-ops um, to the point where we actually, we had a, our innovation program. We we launched a project a couple of years ago. It started off, we called it the anti-franchise model project. It's almost like an upside down franchise scenario where, you know. We could be kind of a hub for coffee businesses to get their supply of green coffee or their supply of roasted coffee, their expertise and training, even their bookkeeping, because we'd have that expertise. But people would have independent worker co-ops that, you know, I guess there's some kind of agreement that would have to be in place, you know, to kind of help make sure that uh, we work together um, over a period of time. But we wanted to look at, well, how how do you create these kind of smaller co-ops out of nothing and you know we anyway we did a lot of work around that but what we stumbled up against was people's lack of understanding and knowledge just around worker co-ops period and some probably some misinformation or misunderstandings that they have around worker co-ops which led us to start to think about you know how do we promote the idea of worker co-ops and if you go to business school, you don't learn about worker co-op. That's not one of the models that typically get talked about. Maybe it gets mentioned. So we spoke locally with the Katy Entrepreneur Center about maybe getting some, maybe at least if they could mention that that kind of model in, in that kind of a setting when entrepreneurs come and talk about starting a business. But you know, when you go to a lawyer to start to incorporate your business, they don't talk about a worker co-op, right? So. There's a real lack of foundational understanding around worker co-ops, and what understanding does exist isn't necessarily accurate. It, it, it gives—I think—it gives people a sense of it's an old-fashioned thing that fishermen used to do, or or it's a thing that you know only hippies that don't want to actually run a real business will do. Uh, there's this general sense of things, but when I look at the current Generation of folks up and coming into the workplace—it is so in line with their general philosophy and value set to the point where we thought, well, how do we do? You know, we need to promote this thing. We need to make this thing become a cool idea that folks know about. But it's—it's—it's a a struggle because there's a lack of co-op developers these days. Um, We're trying to spur an an event in October in in Halifax. We're hoping uh, to bring Atlantic Co-op developers and interested folks together to get that beyond just our co-op. The problem is, as a business, we're a co-op running a business, and so we get interested in these things when we have time, and then suddenly we get busy because things are challenging, and they fall off our plate. We need an organization that can help carry that on its own, and um, there just not there isn't that right now. And uh, but I think we're in desperate need of it. And I think this is the moment where it can really happen. Everything's so aligned to, to, to do that. So I, I think it's a really good question, but I think there's a lot of challenges and this mostly kind of cultural and educational
2: that's in the way. I just can't help but feeling so excited listening to that. And hopefully just good business can play uh, a small role uh, in that education and that amplifying your voices and your work and really look at the business model and the details of it and create those learning spaces uh, for those who want to engage. As you rightly said, young people are very aligned to this whole idea, uh, but they don't always know how to go about doing it. Mm
1: Also, as the resident hippie here who is uh, holding back his hair with his headphones, um, I'd say I'd, I definitely empathize and, and agree. And I would suggest that there are numerous organizations that can identify as social enterprising or having social enterprising activities, be they, you know, B Corps structure or a CIC structure or a co-op structure. Um, that aren't nearly as explored as possible. And you said it at the beginning when you're talking about how we have to decolonize. And decolonizing is really, really important when it comes to business structures as well. And this is an opportunity to, to do that. So when it comes to, you know, policy can be a can be a four-letter word sometimes when it comes to trying to reinvent and, and restructure policy work. But I'd be curious to know, Joey, on your end, your advice for for any one uh, person looking to shift towards you know, a social entrepreneurial model or, or, or creating social entrepreneurial impact in what they do? Well, the first thing I'd say is get in touch with folks that are doing that work,
0: get, you know, building that network. And unfortunately, it doesn't just exist quite yet where you can kind of tap into it and kind of, you know, I think to some degree there are things there, you know, the social, certainly, you know, the social enterprise world, I think has made a whole lot of progress in the last few years, far more than the worker co-op concept has, but you know, you need to have an open mind and go and talk to the folks that are running worker co-ops and I'm going to speak specifically to worker co-ops because that's what I know best. I mean, we are by definition a social enterprise just because of the way we structure our business. And I think we also do some things business-wise that, that, that fall under that category, but we have to understand that complexity doesn't have to be a bad thing when we structure our business a little bit more in a, in a worker co-op model. We have to be open to the fact that um, a lot of richness and a lot of resilience is built into your organization because of that complex structure. And it doesn't mean that everybody's got to make the decision is here at Just Us whether or not we sell our coffee to this company or that company. We don't need everybody to decide that. We've got people that have responsibilities. So I think that that's a big piece to reach out. We've spoken with a number of people entertaining the idea of the worker co-op. But also, I think um, there are actually resources out there to help us get there. You know, there's a few. The Canadian Worker Co-op Federation um, is one. There's Co-op Convert has a lot of research and case studies on co-ops. So it is really about getting out and doing your research. I think it, it's also about if you if we are going to decolonize, Matt, like if we are really going to look at that model, we have to get out of our individualism mindset a little bit. And that's the beauty of the worker co-op. Getting out of the bro entrepreneur kind of concept we see going crazy these days. Even if you're social enterprise, I just I feel that that's a lot of what the focus is. But when you're creating an organization from community, which is what you're doing in a worker co-op, you're it's a complicated group. It's more than three or four people typically. It means you have to be an entrepreneur, but you have to also have a generosity of spirit that only comes in community when you care about one another, because your idea is going to get transformed. It's going to change because you've got multiple people involved in in driving this business idea forward. So I think that's ultimately where some of our challenges worker co-ops comes from is that the culture that we live in doesn't create the context for worker co-op structures for basically for democratic economies it we want to vote every four years for a government and that's our form of democracy but when we could actually experience it on a daily basis at our workplace we think oh that's too complicated that's the businesses can't be run that way And uh, I think it's a big mistake, but we do have to slow down, Like That's the challenge. As businesses, sometimes you have to move quickly and that doesn't jive with slowing down and and working within community to make decisions. I get it, but there are ways to do it. And if we're willing to look to others who are doing it for support and how to structure that and then build it into be our own thing over time, I think we can do that. But we need starting places that are tangible, that we can dig our feed into a little bit, learn our business, run our business, be successful at our business. And then over time we'll see that the community that is that worker co-op will change what it wants out of its co-op because it's mature and it understands that and because that community relationship exists and that's when it can evolve into what, you know, maybe more, more appropriate for that group of people. Policy, I don't know. I'm not a policy person. But I can speak to to the human dynamics and the group dynamics that exist in the worker co-op and why sometimes they feel like you're really climbing uphill trying to get traction on the worker co-op concept.
1: It sounds like the way that you're describing it that it's a structure that can fundamentally align with where culture is, as far as the individuals that are entering the workforce. However, may not be where workplace culture and structure has become. So it's an opportunity to help shift that further,
2: furthermore. Mm -hmm. You may not be a policy person, but you definitely are a philosopher. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much to you, to taking time off to talk to us your incredible team. Uh, We as Just Good Business have identified this gap on how do we really identify and amplify the social enterprise network and space in our province. We have realized uh, social enterprises uh, or social enterprise is not a destination, it's a journey, it's a meandering journey. Uh, And how do we get into that space intentionally? So thank you so much.
1: To learn more about Just Us, visit justuscoffee.com. Throughout the episode, Joey refers to their structure as a worker co-op. It's an interesting structure and you can learn more at canadianworker.coop.
2: When you enjoy fresh roasted Just Us coffee, you join in a circle of empowered partners who work towards positive social impact and community well-being. Just as products are available throughout Atlantic Canada and Ontario. Go grab yourself a cup of Joe. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to tune in for more. I'm Matt and I am Anuj and this has been Just Good Business Podcast.